Good morning, everyone. How are good you morning, good morning, good morning. And it is a good morning here in sunny Seattle. And we're in sunny Toronto, right above you and to the east. And I am so excited. I wake up and I get to see what unbelievable guests we have on Office Hours. And I see below we're promoting our beloved charity, the Unstoppable Celebration of Champions, the Unstoppable Foundation. But our guest is Unstoppable, Lori Garber. <laughs> He is the former deputy director of NASA and now, of course, author of Escaping Gravity, which I'm sure intrigues Blaine and I immensely as we have many, many discussions about the laws of the universe and, of course, the laws of nature. Uh, and uh, Lori, welcome, first of all, to Office Hours. Thank you. It is wonderful to be with you. I well, start... yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I wanted to start in a more imaginative uh, arena in the respect that all of us are a little bit um, older and, you know, we, it, it just surpasses my imagination uh, technology. And of course, as a child, one of the dreams in the most imagined states are uh, space travel, uh, especially, you know, as we were pursuing it so uh, with, with such fervor when we were young and you know now we have these you know people can go to space if you're rich enough you can have your own rockets and uh you know it's just incredible so before i get into more of the details of uh, escaping gravity i just wanted to know what it was like uh, as a deputy director of nasa to see firsthand probably things that surpassed your imagination as a child well, sure. Thank you. I, of course, that is the point of writing a book as I was able to experience something at NASA. I was there twice, actually, for a total of over 10 years um, to, to see things that most people don't get to see. Most people only dream about. And part of the reason we have NASA is to inspire dreams and to be there and able to drive change that is allowing more people to not only experience space, but I think see the value that returns from this unique perspective because we live at a time uh, when I think throughout history, people looked up and wondered what was there and imagining that we are now going um, can be profound. You know, it's, well, NASA was founded, if memory serves, 1958. <clears throat> yes. And, uh, yeah, in that time frame, um, you know, the, the, the imagination, I mean, to the point that David's making here, desire is the fuel, from my perspective, desire is the fuel that imagination uses to actually produce our experiences in life. And that desire to, to transcend the surly bounds of, of Earth, of gravity, um, what would you say, I mean, right now, you know, like, you know, we've got SpaceX, we've got, you know, you know Bezos, and we've got uh, Elon doing what they're doing. NASA, founded in 1958, is a bureaucracy in a lot of ways that is not as facile as the uh, uh, private uh, enterprise organizations are. What's the biggest challenge that you think that NASA actually is 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 encountering right now? And I'm thinking about this in terms of gravity. What's what's keeping what's keeping it kind of held down from where it could be going? 
Right. Well, um, you hit the mark. This is, you know, my name of my book has a double meaning because we learn to escape gravity by focusing together in an aligned vision. And we did something people thought was impossible. And yet the gravity of our situation is sort of holding us back in many ways. And at NASA, that was because the organization that was created around beating the Russians wasn't the facile, as you said, innovative way that in this country, at least, we advance um, projects of this magnitude. And if you think of aviation, we did not have government-owned and operated airplanes um, beyond, I mean, the early days were actually the government programs were well behind what the private people were doing. And that has become the case now. And so Unleashing the Dragon is one of my chapters. When I went back to NASA in 2008, it was clear to me that replacing the shuttle with a government-owned and operated vehicle was the wrong way to go. And setting up this competition wasn't easy within the structure that sort of uh, binds us, the relentless momentum of the status quo, but I was very lucky to have, especially SpaceX and Elon there to be able to invest their own funds without worrying. You know, you guys are the entrepreneurial people. That's, that's how you make big leaps is because they don't even own their, oh, their shareholders. And at this point, it took someone coming out of a different arena because everyone in aerospace was sort of bought into the the existing programs. Right. And it's so interesting when you talk about the status quo or the existing programs or the bureaucracy that's created uh, within government entities. And as uh, technology accelerates at such an extraordinary pace, it's almost anti uh, congruent with how governments are set up and how government decision-making <laughs> And I think that's when, you know, you take uh, David McCord, who wrote the book, Rethink, and I look at all the major institutions, uh, historical institutions in the United States, the biggest uh, interference that we have is our political system and the speed in which you can make a decision uh, because technology is changing so quickly. Um, looking at these billionaires and how quickly they can make decisions and how quickly it moves, why does it matter that we have, you know, this uh, entrepreneurial space travel compared to, uh, you know, I'll use a sports analogy. You know, they were, the, the Russians were always amazed that they, at the age of five, could genetically in, pick out and sometimes engineer athletes uh, for particular sports, but yet the Americans beat them every single time. And, you know, it was an, an evolutionary thing. I see the same thing in space. Uh, that we allow the American ingenuity, the American energy to exceed this engineered decision-making process or governmental uh, pursuit. Why does that matter uh, to us to have people, entrepreneurs, uh, these billionaires, space uh, you know, cowboys, uh, taking us to space and, and exploring and gathering data for us? Well, I think it matters for a number of reasons. The first being we really weren't doing it successfully as a bureaucracy. It is ironic that we went about, you know, beating the Soviets in space. And then the programs we set up were sort of Soviet style. And those aren't the most competitive. We wanted a competitive industry. 
And if you think about it, at the turn of the century, we only had a, a launch, maybe a year of commercial satellites because we had priced ourselves out of the game with a monopoly in the government. And so bringing on private companies, and again, SpaceX is the clear leader. In 2020, uh, we led all nations, whereas we had lost China, France, and Russia, the commercial launch arena. So each of those launches brings hundreds of millions of dollars to our economy. That is another big reason. And people who I know are critical of the of the billionaires, um, we I, I just ask you to think of what how would we be thinking feeling if these folks were doing this in China? Um, we wouldn't like that, right? This this you may think, and I know you clearly um, are supportive, but there is a bit of a backlash. And I think the point is we have as a nation inspired innovation. And the reason is it keeps us at the cutting edge. This has not only helped the space program be able to launch so many more unique spacecraft because the cost is less, we've won back commercial market share for our economy and it's improved our national security. Yeah, yeah, and, and taking that innovation thread just a little bit further, one of the things that I am, you know, have always been intrigued about the space program, you know, that you know, NASA you know, kind of was in the forefront of for decades, was all of the ancillary products, commercial products that came out of it that were not, I mean, to be, to be able to shave in space. I mean, you know, the way that some of this stuff actually came into play commercially in, in other products that we don't even know had their origin in space research. NASA yeah. calls them spinoffs, but the truth is there really benefits, and that is how innovation takes place. People look at something in a different way, bring together um, <clears throat> ideas from uh, th that have never been tried before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, you go, David. No, no, go ahead. Bro. Go ahead. I've got a dog. <laughs> oh man, I'll go ahead. <laughs> sorry, that's something down the wrong pipe there. <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that. You, you know, nowadays it's a, a very dangerous thing to cough in public lane, so you, you have to be careful why you, you cough and how we explain it. Uh, anyway, I'll go, I'll go ahead real quickly. I um, what's next? That you know, you have such a great insight. I would love to know what you see for us for, uh, over the horizon. Sure. I mean, one of the things that I was not able to do that I um, go into quite a bit in the book is that we are still with NASA doing some big sort of more Soviet style programs. The Space Launch System is being tested right now to launch. They hope to get us back to the moon in the mid 20s. Um, and of course, it's been already over 50 years since we went to the moon. They did, NASA selected SpaceX for the Lunar Lander Program. So as SpaceX develops its Starship, if you're following that, the big reusable vehicle, I think there'll be um, perhaps an interesting competition here between a NASA designed, developed, owned and operated rocket, was supposed to launch in 2017 the first time, it hasn't launched yet, it's cost us $40 billion, this system, and SpaceX has been doing it at no cost to the taxpayer. So we're, we're in for a real shock here, I think. And 
That's why I, I wrote this book to give the backstory because NASA really needs to focus on the next hill, um, you know, climbing the next hill and driving technologies that will help bring down the risk so that the private sector can come in. Yeah. Yeah, kind of going back to my point you know, at the very beginning here, the desire is the fuel of imagination. You know, we had desire to land on the moon back in, you know, I remember in 62, 63, 62, I guess it was when Kennedy yeah, made that speech at Rice University. 61. 61. 61 at Rice University. Yeah, so oh, well, 62 was ago. Rice. He set, it, he set the program up with a congressional um, speech in 61. 62. I just want to make a note right here. I was born in 1968, Blaine. There you go. <laughs> I just do that because I don't feel young anymore. Now when I hang out, Blaine, I was like, I would have been alive then. <laughs> I remember that speech. <laughs> I'm glad you guys confirmed the date because I don't trust history books anymore after what I've read. So go ahead. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you know, the, the qu quick question here as we get close to wrapping, Laurie, um, what is the one thing, and this is, I mean, feel free not to answer this here, but what is the one thing that you would have loved to have shepherded in your tenure at uh, NASA that you you couldn't quite get over the hump because of the bureaucracy? Oh, gosh, this is this is a tell-all if you haven't yeah. heard of it. So. <laughs> I thought it might be. <laughs> there, an escaping gravity, part of the gravity of our situation that we have not yet overcome is there is still a preponderance of these cost-plus government contracts for work that I think the private sector is going to be able to do at a better value to the taxpayer. There's plenty for NASA to do. And we are, I think, un unfortunately, because of the congressional um, really dictates, they said, we are going to build this rocket in these certain states with these certain contractors. And we all know, you know, that's not the most efficient way to do it. Thus, the cost overruns and the time. But the person who, who really assured that happened in Congress is now the head of NASA. So it's, uh, we, he has been talking about the value of commercial space. So I think we're winning friends with our success every day. All right. Okay, we have a few seconds. Any, any bookstore, Escaping Gravity. Yep, Escaping Gravity. Escaping Gravity. Before I let you leave, though, Steve Kane is in the green room. Um, I'm going to ask you this. You don't have to answer. I know many astronauts. I've met with many people at NASA, but I, I would love to hear your insight. Or if it's in the book, we can hold it back and people can read it. But aliens, do they exist? Well, this is a question that my children, who are 30 and 27, continue to ask me. It is not in the book because although I had the clearances, I do not have them now and you do not have them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think that Elon Musk. Is, I I think this is my personal opinion, not that of uh, LinkedIn or anywhere else. But I believe Elon Musk is an alien. They just changed his name to Elon. <laughs> okay. So if anyone is, well, you know, I've, I've got some stories in the book uh, about um, times I've spent with him. I'm, I uh, might agree. Yeah, he's Good amazing. Guy. He's amazing. I think they just—he's the hybrid, uh, the most apparent hybrid on on Earth. And uh, my wife would not allow me to have you on here without asking that question. And when I, I first asked, I, I actually did it here, or maybe in Portugal, and I won't mention the astronaut's name. Uh, but when I asked him, he, he answered. By the way, 
but he's like, yeah, sure. Your wife wants to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blame it. Blame it on Julie. It's all yeah, Julie's but Blaine, Blaine knows because he's had many alien conversations with my wife. So he knows I'm telling the truth. Anyway, everyone should pick up this book. This is the future. This is insight and background on what's going to happen. But most importantly, I see it as a very inspirational book. Uh, one that inspires possibilities and probabilities that later in life may become your reality if you dream really big. And that's what I love most about your book is you are liberating all of us to dream big again and to personally uh, make it happen that we don't have to rely on anyone else. Lori Garver, LoriGarver.com. You can find this book everywhere. Escaping Gravity. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Please come back. I got many others. We love to dig deep into your book. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. What a great interview. That was good. All right. Hopefully, Steve Cage in the green room and here he popped on just in there time. Look at that guy. Here he is. Perfect hiring. And uh, you're, you're the Rob Angel of, of gaming. And I don't know if you know who Rob Angel is. He's a dear friend of mine who invented Pictionary. And anyway, we have the co-founder in Seattle. Up there in Seattle, Blake knows him. Co-founder and CEO of Golden Hearts Games, goldenheartsgames.com. And very, you know, this is up our alley in compassion and capitalism, Blaine. Uh, it is a groundbreaking digital charitable promotional game company um, and utilizing mobile and internet uh, to support our favorite charities. Uh, and you can win actually some cash, uh, which... Yep. Uh, Makes it the world's first, I think, charity casino, <laughs> which is super cool. Um, and uh, and it's not just a theory. They've raised over $10 million in donations. You can see uh, we want to integrate our charity. You can see it down there, the Unstoppable Foundation. Of oh, excellent. We, we would love to do that. But, you know, what inspired you to take, you know, obviously a very successful uh, platform and, you know, promote charity uh, and raise money for charity uh, with this gaming and, and a lot and a lot of fun, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Um, good morning. It's great to be here. Um, you know, basically, um, uh, I'm the co-founder of the company, and uh, my co-founder Jeremy Shea and I have been in the games industry for a long time. Let's just say uh, <laughs> had 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 you know uh, loved it and had some success there. Um, and the two of us were excited to, you know, whatever, get back in the arena and do another startup and all the kind of highs and lows associated with that. But we really wanted to focus on some way to start a new company that had giving back in its DNA. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a, a bunch of companies, some quite notable, have uh, formed themselves as what are called B corporations. That's one way to do it. Um, we were, you know, really determined to try and find an even better, bigger way to do it. And so we, 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 you know, it took us a while, but we, we came up with this model where charitable giving is just in the DNA of the business model itself. It's not like, a, oh, we had a good quarter, we'll, we'll write a check to charity or, oh, periodically we'll partner with such and such a charity and raise money for, you know, hurricane victims or, something event-driven like that. No, every single click, every single player, every single game is continuously uh, raising money for good causes. 
Uh, and that, that really inspired us and gave us, you know, even further impetus and energy to go back and, and do another startup. And as, as we know, you know, doing startups, you know, everybody always tells their story looking backwards was I had a great idea. I executed brilliantly and I was successful. Uh, actually that never happens. Um, you know, startups are, you know, whatever you want to call it, very zigzag up, down, get, you know, hit in the face with a brick once a day. And so for us, that was just like this huge, you know, kind of driving force that we really got excited about. And that I'm, you know, I, I will tell you that, you know, all of our staff think that's an incredibly meaningful part of what we're doing. And then the other thing that, you know, really motivated us, um, anybody who's ever looked at you know, digital games, broadly speaking, you know, the whole gamut from casino games to Candy Crush Saga to Farmville to whatever type of game, you know, it's one of the core uses of any digital device, phone, computer, tablet, you know, people use these things for personal communications, for photography, maps, oh, and they, and they play games. And so there's this fire hose of activity and we were really excited and, and are, you know, motivated every day to kind of take that fire hose and divert it like a millimeter to one side. And just that, 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 that awesome power and that huge population and audience and activity <clears throat> of gameplay and have it do a little good. You know, we don't, we don't need to tilt it like it's so massive. We don't need to tilt it 90 degrees. We just need tiny little teeny. And, and just a world of good stuff will happen if we can, if we can do that. And then, and then the final piece, um, you know, forgive me if I, you know, compare myself to these people for at least a second, but in the way that like, you know, Bernie Sanders early campaigns and Barack Obama's early campaigns really opened people's minds and, and to, to how you can democratize um, support for political campaigns and candidates. You know, we aspire to, I guess you, I will use the word democratize the world of philanthropy a little bit. Um, you know, uh, Americans in general are extremely philanthropic people and, and, and huge amounts of money go to philanthropy uh, every year, I'm happy to say. Um, but what's not really known is that 70% of those dollars are from very small donors, very tiny increments, very small donors. Uh, and those donors don't get celebrated. They don't get rewarded. You know, big donors do. Naturally, they do. Of course, uh, they do. Um, you know, galas and names on buildings and media profiles and red carpets and all sorts of goodies. Small donors don't get anything. Um, also, big, humongous philanthropies tend to really dominate the landscape. I, I, I won't name any names, but, you know, we know who they are. These humongous foundations that have a tremendous influence on what gets done and what dollars go where. Whereas actually the landscape, the vast majority of philanthropies and charities are very tiny local uh, charities. And so with our platform, we are empowering and rewarding the small donor, giving them fun and the chance to win as a reward for their philanthropic giving and no matter how small and does they don't have to you know they can be a tiny participant that's just as rewarded as a big one and equally we're empowering small charities to have an ongoing relationship with small donors because small charities are so thinly resourced and staffed trying to communicate and create relationships with small donors they simply don't have the time or the staff 
well, the money. And so they don't even try. And so we want to create a frictionless platform, if you will, where they can have these ongoing relationships with the small donor who kind of circling back to my previous point is just doing what they love to do anyway, which is playing games on their phone. Yeah. Two things come to mind here real, real quick, Steve. Um, one is embedding it in the DNA of the organization. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that's brilliant. If every business was doing that, it would be a very interesting, I think, landscape to use your word here um, commercially. I mean, just, you know, the, the whole economy would, I think, transform in a fundamentally uh, positive way. But you know, the other thing has to do with the relationship between philanthropy and friction. OK, um, a lot of times it's hard to give. Uh, who, do, who do I give to? Uh and a lot of people have this sense that I, I can only give if I'm a big guy. You know, I've got money surplus. It's a, it's a surplus thing. Right. When I'm embedding it in the process where it becomes frictionless, I begin to change my sense of identity of who I am. And <clears throat> I, yeah, 70%, you know, like you said, small donors. When people begin to think of themselves as philanthrop uh, philanthropists, they're, they're not... Uh, uh, you know, John Jacob Astor, or uh, you know, fill in the uh, fill in the blank here. Uh, but they're, I'm just me. But part of who I am is designed to do good. Part of who I am is a center of distribution. What's the vehicle that I can use to actually do good, and how can I actually facilitate that? And this is I, I love how you're answering that question. Thank you. <clears throat> Yeah, we, we, you know, sometimes we call our players the everyday heroes of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And you know, we hope that, you know, that, that, you know, I don't think, I don't think we need to turn on the charitable impulse in people. I think it's there already. already but there. but I, I do love the idea that we're somehow high-fiving them and saying what you think and do matters, no matter what scale you may be, you may be doing it at. You know, every little bit counts is the old cliche, but it's true. Every little bit does count. And, you know, in a world where like the, the charities themselves don't really have tools to reward these small everyday heroes, fine. We, we will step into that void and and celebrate, you know, the overall picture of being philanthropic and and large numbers and this and that. But we will equally celebrate the small and individual act of generosity. And you guys actually uh, deal with so many charities. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think the, the grants that you give uh, with over 54,000 nonprofits. Uh, yes. It, how would that be? I'm blessed to be, you know, chairman of unstoppable. I'm the chief chancellor and Blaine's a chancellor of junior achievement university, which is a, very large NGO just got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, a great honor for a charity. Uh, and then I also on the board of advisors on the sports side of St. Jude, how do you distinguish uh, with so many nonprofits? Is there a qualification process or just a sign up? Um, there's um, th I'm going to give you a two part answer to that. The first part is that we do not um, presume to try to tell the average everyday hero philanthropy what cause or what charity or or what organization they they should support that's entirely up to them 
Um, we have a feed of every uh, 501c3 charitable organization that is recognized by the IRS. And this was a big education to me. There's almost 1.5 million 501c3s in the United States. That was a, that was a learning experience uh, for me. In any case, they're all available on our platform. When, when people come to sign up and to participate, we ask them, you know, what charity would you like to support? And we allow them to either type in a name if they know the name or to search that, that, that database of charities by name, by zip code, by, you know, keyword, by cause. Um, not surprisingly, as you mentioned, uh, David, we've already, uh, our players have already supported over 54,000 different 501c3s in the United States. The vast majority of them, I mean, not surprising to me anyway, are very small, very local, you know, people's houses of worship, animal rescues, firefighters funds. Um, but then the second, I said, it's a two-part answer. The second part is, well, so that's kind of like the incoming player. We don't, we don't try to, you know, hold their hand and point it at any particular charity or cause. However, we, we actively uh, seek uh, uh, um, charities to join what we call our philanthropic partner coalition. And these are charities that like what we do and that would like to work with us to stimulate giving to them by stimulating activity, uh, people playing our game. And in that case, we work with them and we give them tools to, you know, embed links or, you know, graphics or whatever in their websites or emails or whatever, whatever techniques they might use to reach out to their constituents. And in that case, if, if, a, if, a, if a consumer, you know, is exposed to Golden Heart Games via one of our coalition partners' efforts, then their entire experience of Golden Hearts Games is like a co-branded experience. And so mm -hmm. they, they, they click a link that takes them to a co-branded version of the site. Their, the charity selection menu is pre-populated with the name of that charity. And so that experience, you know, by the way, the consumer is always free, free to change. I mean, they, just because they click a link doesn't mean they have to support charity XYZ, but the, we make the presumption that they do want to, and that's why they're there. And we put them into a, a co-branded version of, of, of the whole site and all the game. Everything else is exactly the same. You're playing the same games, same competitions, same prizes, et cetera. You're just in kind of a co-branded experience. Um, and, and also, you know, so, so the charities that are our partners get what in essence are almost like annuity streams because as these players play today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, they're constantly creating donations and support for that charity. And in addition, as a, as a, as a partner benefit, we pay what we call our bonus grants. So we, we incentivize the charities to, to let the world know about us and what we do. Um, and, and, and hopefully, you know, we directly support the charity in that way. That's Steve Kane is very able, no pun intended, the co-founder and CEO of Golden Hearts Games, goldenheartsgames.com, uh, taking extreme skills, knowledge, and desire and putting it forward towards charity, a true compassionate capitalist aligned with Lane and I. Come back and join us again. Made Donated over $6 million, generated donations of over $6 million this year alone. Uh, yes. So if you want to have fun and support your favorite cause, we all know where to go now. Thanks, Steve King. We'll have you back. Thank you Thanks, very much. Steve. You take Thank care. You. Bye now. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, we've had great guests. Uh, 
I, I would hate to be Andrew here coming on the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> buddy. Uh, no, uh, Andrew Kodispati, is that, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of these interviews recently, and uh, I, I need to I need to educate people on this name that nobody's ever heard. It's Kodispati, uh, <laughs> but people say Kodispati, Kodispati, but it's Kodispati. 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 Don't worry, I, I'll get it wrong if you told me. So Kodispati, Andrew Kodispati, co-CEO of Good Life Clothing. Obviously, the team is aligning all of our great guests today and, uh, you know, looking at how, once again, we can be a compassionate capitalist, uh, getting not only the value, but the impact. And, you know, I think our world is moving in the right direction. I know a lot of people may not feel that way, but uh, always when uh, we raise the awareness to different challenges, it's because we are in the learning curve we're, we're pressing the envelope if we were sitting in a comfort zone none of these issues that uh people are worried about today uh would be in our awareness that's at least my personal opinion uh what has you really inspired you uh to create you know good life clothing uh which goes far beyond just you know quality uh apparel yeah i, I think you know throughout our journey i'm glad you said that i mean it, it nowadays it it, it it really behooves the person to, to uh, uh, reflect on where we've come from as a society. I mean, there's it's it's always doom and gloom when you uh, when you um, you know open the newspapers and watch TV, and uh, yet we've evolved quite a bit. And I think more than anything nowadays, um, particularly the younger generation, Gen Z, who gets a lot of flack from the older generations, people are becoming much more mindful, mindful living um, in, in all aspects of, of you know mental health. Um, are, are at the at the foreground, and um, you know, Good Life was originally it was just kind of inspired by my my business partner, my other co CEO, uh, Chris Molnar. He came, came came from the fashion industry. He was running the men's business in Michael Kors prior to um, prior to us starting Good Life, and he, uh, you know, he just recognized first of all the fashion industry was this kind of this big bloated, wasteful um, industry, and. He wanted to lean in on the categories that people kept, kept coming back to buy over and over again they were, they were, that were being underserved. So what we set out to build was really a CPG-like um, fashion business. Um, CPG meaning consumer packaged goods, making yeah. goods, uh, products with addictive fits in your wardrobe staples that people keep coming back over and over again. So we kind of did that right in the sense that um, you know most of our production is domestic, uh, it's very high quality. You know, we, we created this great product and entered the market. And then as we've evolved, um, you know, more and more of what we do is sustainable. More and more of what we do um, has a recycling component. Um, and, you know, it's, it kind of dovetails with the fact that we make beautiful, simple clothes for authentic living. And, um, and I think that jives in the, in the whole name, Good Life, jives with that, sort of um, mindful path to self-actualization that, you know, hopefully most people, um, most people enter at some, some state in their lives, right? Usually it's uh, usually a, a younger person lives that kind of more egocentric journey um, to achieve success in some sort of medium. And then they transcend that. And then they, they start following uh, their passions, their, their true centered selves. And we like to be um, celebrators of that journey. And so, David, what you, what you kind of said at the top there, I think, and I, I mentioned the early, the, the younger generations now, I feel like 
that journey is happening sooner for uh, for these younger generations. And that's that that inspires me, it gives me a lot of hope. Oh, Blaine, you, you muted. This is Blaine's first show. You got to unmute yourself, brother. <laughs> I was coughing, so I muted myself. The whole idea of inspiration and, and uh, uh, dream. Yeah, getting captured by somebody's dream is a real interesting process. And what I'm interested in, you were originally an angel investor in the firm. And there must have been something there that kind of, you know, not only caught your attention such that you said, yeah, hey, here's a check, but yeah. pulled you all the way over to say, no, I'm, yeah, I'm on a, operationally, I want to make this thing run. Um, and it's got to be more than just the return on the investment that you made as an angel investor. So what is it about, and you, and you talked about this a little bit, but a little bit more granular, what is it about the firm, about, you know, good life itself that caught your heart? Yeah, that's 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 a very intuitive uh, analysis there. I, I, you you kind of dug right in. I, I've had an interesting journey to um, to the point that seat I'm sitting in. I was um, I have a Wall Street background. I you know I was I was uh, running a, a trading desk at an investment bank, um, and then I, I had a proprietary trading hedge fund. And at that time, I was making private investments in CPG type companies. Um, when my business partner now Chris. Um, He's somebody I grew up with, and yes, yeah, so we've known each other forever. He's been one of my best friends since elementary school, so we had this implicit trust. And I always tell a story—not that I recommend this—but we, um, when we started the business, I basically took that you know angel check, put it into a bank account. We shook hands, and I, we didn't have an operating for two years. So for me, it was it was betting on people, and um, so I did that. And you know, I believed in his vision. Uh, I can't pretend that I, I, I dove right into the fire and. Um, had this, you know, ha- had this epiphany that uh, th- th- this was going to be my passion. We, you know, it was his brainchild, but then it became our baby. And I kind of matriculated into the business. And after a few years of him developing it um, and doing so with, with tremendous integrity, um, I was doing more and more for the business. And it got to the point when I was running a trading business that, you know, I was living this kind of manic lifestyle that suited the old me. And I had that path to self-actualization that I described, I didn't know it at the time, but I was on that path. And, and for me, I wanted to pursue passion, something, um, something that had more meaning, which was creating jobs, building a business, building something um, uh, with a lot of integrity that I could be proud of. And it just, I just kept getting sucked into it until um, one day, you know, we started to raise a little bit of outside capital and I was putting more money into the business. Um, and I just realized I, you know, you, I have to be all in, you know, you, you, you have to dive in. I, and I walked away from that more egocentric trade, that, that roller coaster ride that wasn't really serving me anymore. Um, I took a step back from, um, you know, uh, near term, near term earnings, right. To, to build something for the long term and to build equity in a business. And, um, and I'm glad I did, you know, I had a little bit of an existential crisis at one point, but uh, we, we, we got through that. And uh, you know, I always say I've never, I've never, tasted success in my life without taking myself out of my comfort zone and um, and making a, you know, a career move after 15 years on Wall Street to enter the fashion business was um, that was that was a, a massive uh, sea change for me. It's ama- amazing how things evolve and the coincidences that occur 
um, obviously with a positive perspective that you and your elementary school friend have coordinated and collaborated on, uh, Andrew. But I always find it interesting. I worked with a young kid years and years ago, uh, Dan Fleischman. Uh, we went to the same high school, but I was much high, older than he was. But he wanted to start the T-shirt company, uh, Who's Your Daddy T-shirts, and ended up being one of the youngest guys, if not the youngest guy to take a company public uh, with some guidance from me and, and our friends who were in our early 30s. But I, I can't still believe in 20, you know, whatever year it was that you somehow became the number one T-shirt brand at Nordstrom's. And it seems what, you know, to, to me that you could take something as basic as a T-shirt that you can create at your house now with these machines or whatever the heck i forget the name of them the croquet machines or whatever sure. they call them uh, but how, what do you what do you think it is uh when you have something that's so saturated a, a t-shirt what do you think the difference was that you know made it such a popular brand you know i think um so when we started it was it was really an underserved uh segment you know and like i said when chris was at michael kors he He's like, I, you know, he was like, I've been reading selling reports for 15 years and, you know, and, and in the stuff that, you know, we sell in there, these profit centers at these uh, large, larger um, fashion houses are completely underserved because they're worried about fashion and, uh, you know, and just creating product and they're having meetings about meetings. But, um, you know, even during the proliferation of the DTC brands that entered the space, um, a lot of it is. To, to make a high quality T-shirt, you actually have to spend uh, a lot of money on fabric. It's not all not all cotton is the same. There's there is a lot to it. We've proprietarily um, developed a, a you know a couple of fabric blends that you know really have amazing hand. But also, the fabrication needs to be done. Not all factories are the same. So you know you you have these uh, these companies that are making product and you know overseas and places with terrible, you know, environmental conditions, terrible humanitarian conditions, et cetera. While, you know, they'll use some recycled plastic and, and say they're, they're doing great for the environment. But, uh, you know, let's face it. That's like, that's like buying a Tesla and overlooking the fact that cobalt has to be mined. Right. So, you know, so we, if we're, if we're in arguably the number one facility in the U S that fabricates Jersey, um, they really do it. It's like an art and, you know, our factories in Los Angeles, we're now, over 50% of their production. So we're, we're, it's almost like we're vertically integrated at the best um, uh, manufacturing place in the U.S. And a huge difference when it comes to durability, when it comes to having a product with that, with that, with that luxe fabric, with that fabrication, um, you know, we have colors that don't fade. These products, you, you can wash them over and over again. They don't lose shape. We have T-shirts that, frankly, uh, are competitors that are even higher priced than us that are in the luxury category. Um, you know, you wash a t-shirt five times, they, they lose shape. They start getting little holes. They start pilling, uh, the thing that, you know, I, I always forget the name of my, my partners on the, on the production end. I'm, I'm more of the numbers guy, but you know, when you, when you have the little creases in your, in your collar, et cetera, we don't have that. So that coupled with the fact that we have an addictive fit, the silhouette is kind of, you know, that, that's, that, that's more of an art than a science. I think I always think about silhouettes and shoes, you know, you have, I always love common project shoes. They have a very special silhouette that, you know, I, I still wear them all the time. New, new favorite uh, shoe brands, Koyo, um, and similar type of thing. You, 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 you nail that, that one product, um, and you come back for it over and over again. And I think people's shopping habits now, too, are such that 
you know, you have your, uh, your one denim brand, you have your, your favorite t-shirt brand, you have your favorite, you know, uh, dress shirt brand, et cetera. Um, and people are much more, uh, narrowly focused and they're, and they're recognizing what's important in life. And they're kind of Marie Kondoing their life a little bit and not, you know, um, decluttering and, and, uh, you know, not making decisions based on, you know, um, so <laughs> that's, yeah, that's you live, you, you, there's definitely an art to it and there's a secret sauce to a product. And there's a reason, you know, we have retention rates that, that blow out the industry. I mean, we have, you know, we have 50% plus retention rates on our online acquisitions. That's unheard wow. of. That um, is unheard of. Our repeat rates are north of 60%. I mean, it, it's people keep coming back over and over again. Our lifetime values are keep moving up and to the right. And, you know, we built a business um, and I'm not sure how much you guys wanted to get into and, and sort of KPIs businesses, but, um, you know, my, my kind of favorite mantra now is growth is overrated. There's a lot of these businesses that have been overinvested in that can, it's very mm-hmm. easy to grow in the digital world, but it's not easy to retain customers. It's not easy to become profitable. These companies have just poured money into growth and then the rubber never meets the road. And, you know, we we shunned a lot of capital along the way. We, we haven't diluted ourselves much at all. We kind of have, uh, you know, the business is really owned by myself and my partner. And then we have, you know, a small tranche that's owned by, um, you know, a number of evangelists and friends that have, and advisors that have come to us. Outside of that, we've grown in this super efficient way by having an underpinning of, you know, an, an incredible retention business that's allowed us to proliferate and uh, grow the right way. And you certainly have. And you've lived up to your name, living the good life. Goodlifeclothing.com. I love this stuff as well. It, uh, yeah. The name is extraordinary, but the quality is even greater. Andrew Kodaspoti, and I got that right. He's the co-CEO with his, his childhood friend, Chris Molnar uh, from Michael Kors. Check out Good Life Clothing. You will not be disappointed. Andrew, come back and visit us. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'd love to. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Awesome Thank you. Thank you. All right, my friend. Hey, buddy. Takeaway for the day besides the top <clears throat> Takeaway for the day. I'm going to go towards transition. Hmm. Transition. Um, in service of, you know, um, something that uh, Steve talked about, which had to do with uh, um, actualization. Yeah. If I'm not growing, if I'm not you know, looking for ways to become more of who I am, whether I'm a business or whether it's an individual, um, things are going to be off the shelf at some point in time. I mean, there, there's a there, there's an expiry date that uh, is, is present with everything. And, you know, whether I'm you know, if I'm NASA and I just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, I've got to be able to transition. I've got to transition my thinking. I've got to transition the way I you know, my outlook in life. <clears throat> so, you know. When we're looking at what Lori was talking about, you know, you know breaking gravity, you know, just to, yeah, I've got a transition uh, or Steve <clears throat> with his uh, golden hearts. I mean, I love the idea of being able to put stuff together in the way that he has and transitioning from a traditional mindset of philanthropy being you know, just the purview of you know, folks that have money to something that everybody has got this little kernel of that genetic need to give back. And how do I make it frictionless? So I transition the way that we do business to make that happen. And then, yeah, yeah, a T-shirt. I mean, everybody's got a T-shirt, but not everybody has a good life T-shirt. 
<laughs> so what's the transitional piece there? Well, it has to do with quality. It has to do with the way it goes to market, the way that it, anyway. So yeah, keeping uh, an open mind to how I actually live my life. What do I need to transition from and transition into? It's kind of where I'm going with that today. I like it. Mine's real simple. It's possibilities, the probabilities to reality. All three of our guests uh, took either something uh, old and stuck and made it brand new. And uh, I think all three areas uh, were indicative of knowing that this can be better, but possible it can become probable and probability become our reality. And the success has uh, is a testament to to that perspective. So everyone out there, dream big. Blaine Bartlett, BlaineBartlett.com. Support Unstoppable Foundation. Thank there you. you everyone. <laughs> we got to get going. We're here at the collision here in Toronto. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Blaine. <laughs> you bet, buddy. Uh, we will see you soon. Remember, everyone, be more interested than interesting. Training tomorrow is BYOQ, I believe, from Greece. I will be there. Always traveling. Uh, and we look forward to having you uh, just email me over 66,000 people registered. David at dmelter.com. Be kind to your future self. If you're here in Toronto, stop by the collision and see me. David at dmelter.com. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. <laughs>